Welcome to The Details with Elliot Connie and Adam Frower. This is a podcast where we examine the intersection between solution-focused brief therapy and current topics going on in the world. And we do this because we genuinely want the world to be a better place. So enjoy and come examine the details with us. Okay, Adam, so we just learned that the former police officer who was videotaped with his knee on the neck of George Floyd has been convicted on all three charges. My question is, what's your reaction to that? I have mixed reactions. I think the first and foremost reaction is that I think it's a super important decision and a super important verdict. Inequality and injustice has been perpetrated for centuries against people of color, but particularly Black people. And I think um, you and I, we just went on a civil rights history tour this past week. And so it's it's an interesting kind of intersection of experiencing centuries of injustice through going to these various civil rights sites. And then in our time, in this moment, to be experiencing how injustice is continued and how it is continued to be perpetrated. Even while we were on that trip last week, another unarmed Black man was shot. And so coming off of that experience, right, I think the first reaction is relief that it feels like justice has been served. But I think there's a sadness that it comes to these pivotal moments and it's like our country is holding its collective breath to find out what's going to happen. It should be more clear. It should be more transparent about when injustices are given out, that there should be a consequence for those things. And so there's sadness that we still are wrestling with how to deal with injustice. You use the word that I would use. My reaction to the verdict was relief. But I want to tell you why. Like you said, we had just gone on this tour throughout the American South, where prominent civil rights figures and events took place. And for me, that kind of personalized what happened during the verdict, because I immediately thought about Emmett Till. And I immediately thought about the justice that has been denied Emmett Till and his family. And because we talked to certain people last week about that topic, we saw the impact that justice being denied has on a community. But the other thing that I thought was the day when George Floyd died, or I guess I should say more appropriately, more accurately, when George Floyd was murdered, the official police statement on that day was man dies from medical incident during police interaction. That's the official statement his police department made on the day of his death. Man dies from medical incident during police interaction. As a Black person, and every Black person I know had the expectation that that would be the accepted narrative. So when that happened, and we hear man dies during medical incident during police interaction, and then we see the video of what happened with him kneeling on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, we know as a community 
how hard it is to change the narrative from man dies for medical incident during police interaction to the police officer murdered an innocent man. So my relief was they did it. The narrative was changed successfully to police officer murdered an innocent man. But thinking about justice, but justice, like I think this was a really important moment. Like I don't like calling it a step, but it was a really important kind of pin in the moment of history. It was a really important moment, but justice won't be served until we live in a culture where people like me don't have to celebrate what would happen to any other person. And as a black person, like Dylan Roof walks into a church, attends a church service in South Carolina and shoots and kills nine black people in that church. And they bought him Burger King. They arrested him peacefully while he was armed and then bought him Burger King. There's such a difference in how black people and white people experience interactions with police. In, in order to know that justice is present, then the black community would have the expectation that we will be treated the same exact way as anybody else during interactions with police. But the truth is, we live with the expectation or the experience that my black skin is more threatening to you than a white person with a gun. It was such a relief yesterday to see he was held accountable because I think it matters and I think it means something, but it only matters and means something if there are follow-up steps so we can decriminalize black skin so that I am more likely to survive interactions with police. And I couldn't help but think, like Adam, that was the real press release from the police department on the day of his death. How many murders, how many police murders or police murdering innocent black men or at least unarmed black men have taken place where no one had a video camera to record the interaction to dispute what the official statement was. That thought scares me, actually, because, you know, I, I put on Twitter yesterday, it may just be true that the greatest tool we have in the pursuit of justice and equality is now the cell phone, because everyone has one. And we can now record these interactions to dispute the official statement. But I would say the same thing you said for all those reasons. My immediate response yesterday was relief. I think the other thing that kind of comes to my mind as we as we have this conversation is something that we've talked about before on the podcast. But I think um, in this case, it's highlighted in a different way. But it's it's that idea of power and hierarchy. I think in this case, right, there's a social construction of hierarchy that police officers are the law enforcers and police officers are, we even call it the justice department. They are the ones who meet out justice. They give justice. And so I think you're right. It's so hard to change the narrative because it's so embedded into a power structure and a power hierarchy where we trust those with power or we we give those with power the final word. And to change the narrative, it oftentimes falls to the disenfranchised or the unempowered individuals to have to work really, really hard to change that narrative. Whereas the people who have power and privilege, they can simply walk away. They can ignore the conversation and the discussion 
And then the narrative can't be changed because in order for the narrative to be changed, both parties in the conversation have to participate in changing the narrative. And in this case, I think what kind of tipped the scale is you're right. It was a cell phone video that all of a sudden everyone was seeing. And so people who previously hadn't been engaged or who had walked away who or who were ignorant of the conversation, all of a sudden got engaged in the conversation and kind of the outcry of injustice was heard and in a much broader sense than it's ever been heard before. And I think people with power have to join these conversations in order for the narrative to be different. And I think this is one time where we saw when people kind of coalesce and come together and bring to light the discussion that needs to be had, the outcome of the conversation is different. It's interesting you mentioning that because one of the things I've experienced a frustration I've experienced over the course of the past several years is in our field, there have been significant racially driven injustices that I've experienced. Sometimes I will talk, I mean, and you know me, I pushed back and you talk to colleagues and they say things like, I don't discuss politics. And I would try to convey to them, that's your privilege. As a brown skinned person, I don't have that luxury. And if you continue down the path of I don't discuss politics or I don't discuss race or I don't discuss these things, change won't ever happen. One of the first indicators I had that this feels different is there was unanimous agreement that what we saw in that video was not okay. It didn't matter race, gender, age, political party. When we saw that video in 2020, there was unanimous agreement that what we saw in that video was not okay. And I hadn't experienced that before. Like I'm old enough that I remember Rodney King and I remember that video and what that video depicted. And to the black community, and I remember talking to one of my uncles about that, because to me, I was shy. I was, you know, in my teens, growing up in Massachusetts. And I was like, holy cow, there's a video of police officers beating the smoke out of this dude in Los Angeles. And I talked to my uncle about it. And he said, that's not different to me. That happened every day growing up in, in Chicago in the 60s and 70s. So black people had the position that like, oh, this is now evidence of what we've been saying forever. I don't know if you can put this like this moment in time, Adam, but a rap group called NWA had just made a song about the violence. And the, in the song, they said the Los Angeles police are the biggest gang in Los Angeles. And they said, this is evidence that what we've been saying is true. And the white narrative was he was high and speeding. If you don't want to find yourself in scenarios like that, don't get high and don't speed because you deserve this because you were high and you were speeding. I mean, I heard the occasional like super racist, crazy person saying, well, he's a 280 pound black man. What do you want him to do? But by and large, there was unanimous agreement. This is not okay. And something needs to be done. And I hadn't felt that before. So that was that was one of one thing that I noticed was different. And then the second thing I noticed was different was police officers took the stand and testified for the prosecution. And I, again, going back to that narrative, man dies of medical incident during police interaction. Most of the time, in fact, all of the times, 
the police take the stand to support the statement released by their police department. This time, multiple figures from the police department took the stand to say, I, I remember one person testified saying, what I saw in that video goes beyond our training. Another person took the stand and, and said, like, we, this should be categorized as police brutality. That's not common. And those, like, I, I don't know that I expected a guilty verdict other than of course you do because that's what's on the video and like why wouldn't we but from a pursuit of justice marginalized community perspective i was aware that this feels different for those reasons i think the other important thing is taking all of that into consideration and applying it you know to solution focused therapy and some of the lessons here are we as as solution focused clinicians we really need to be intentional about examining our own power, our own privilege. We, we inherently, in sitting in the chair that we sit in, in that therapy room, we sit in the hierarchical position. We sit in a position where we have more power, where, where our voice has more sway, where, where we're granted the privilege of our narrative being the narrative that's heard. We can make diagnoses, and those diagnoses stick with people for the rest of their lives. We can make recommendations to schools or to judges, and we can say, this is my professional opinion about this person. And those things matter. Our voice is raised to a place where we get to make those official statements. As solution-focused therapists, it's really important, it's critical that we in any way possible, elevate the voice of the person sitting with us. Just thinking about George Floyd on the ground for nine minutes, repeatedly saying, I can't breathe. And in essence, that's so symbolic and emblematic of people who come to us who are systemically oppressed, who are systemically discriminated against. And in essence, they're saying like, I can't I can't get a different job. I can't pay my rent. I can't, I can't do these things because of the system that's in place. And oftentimes I've heard clinicians say they're just in denial or they're trying not to change. They don't really want to change. Or the one that really, really hurts my soul is they people will say they don't have any hope. They've lost all hope. And I think if we buy into those things, we buy into the systemic narrative and we ignore the voice of the person who's crying from the ground saying, I need help here. I need you to help me. I think oftentimes we talk about diversity in therapy settings and we talk about it in a really textbook way. I think this case shows us our voices will always be heard more and valued more unless we start highlighting that that isn't the way that it should be. Voices are everything, right? And a Black person saying, I can't breathe, needs to evoke the same response as a white person saying, I can't breathe. And we need to make sure we're living in a world where that is true. I think we have a long way to go. Longer than I thought 10 years ago. You know, I think we have a long way to go. I think this could be a moment of shifting. If we can make it, this could be a moment of shifting. And, and as solution-focused therapists, I think we have to remember that the withholding of justice creates generational trauma, and we don't have the right to describe people as hopeless. We don't have the right to judge people as resistant. 
sometimes I'm not hopeless or resistant. I'm conditioned. I'm just conditioned to believe that this is not going to work out in my favor. Like I look at children, you have three wonderful children that are all to various degrees working hard on their academics to be successful. I believe in my bones, Adam. I could ruin all three of your children's academic endeavors if I convince them, no matter how hard you work, you're never going to get into college. You're never going to graduate from college. You're never going to get a good job. No matter how hard you work, you are never going to be successful. I can't imagine any of your three children getting up the next day being excited about their homework. You know what I mean? Or excited about their schoolwork. Part of what makes your children do what they do is the inherent belief that if I do my best and if I do this work, there's a long-term benefit that will occur. And I'm confident that that long-term benefit will take place. And we have to recognize that there's a lot of communities that are not confident that no matter how hard I work, no matter what I do, I will experience a positive outcome from that work. So your client is not hopeless. Your client is not resistant. They're just conditioned to believe no matter what I say and or do, I can't climb that mountain. There's a mountain in front of me that I can't climb. And when I do climb it, they give they they add more to the mountain or they or there's another mountain. But we have to be aware that people are not hopeless. They're just conditioned. Because some people don't come from an environment where they are believing if I do good things, it will lead to a good outcome for me. I think that matters. The obviousness with which that matters is on me now more than ever before in my life. But I want to create a world where every single child lived their childhood knowing if I do A, B, and C things, it will lead to A, B, and C positive outcomes. And we don't presently live in that world. I came away from the journey we took last week and then the experience we had after the verdict. I am so determined, Adam. I want people to look at my life and be like, if Elliot could do it, I could do it. I want people to look at your life and be like, if Adam could do it, I could do it. I want, I want to inspire and provide hope to communities that haven't had it. I think hope is a key ingredient, even in relationship to the pursuit of justice. One of the things we did last week was we went to a museum and we met a civil rights worker, a freedom rider. And then we watched a movie about Medgar Evers. And then we watched the movie Flying Home about John Lewis. And the one thing that stood out to me more than anything else about those interactions was there was a stubborn hope in each of those people. John Lewis literally said, I'm going to make sure my ability to endure pain outlast your ability to inflict it. I mean, that, oh, I mean, that's crazy. And he, there was, there was something in him that knew if I can do this and if I can take this, change will come. And to me, that's power. And that's how we get more justice is people just being steadfastly committed and people just refusing to accept change won't come. And one of John, like everybody knows his, his famous, like, you know, get in good trouble, necessary trouble kind of phrase. My favorite thing I've ever heard come out of his mouth was I wanted to make sure my ability to endure pain outlasts their ability to inflict it. Man, if the black community can outlast, if our ability to endure pain can outlast the justice system's ability to inflict it, we're going to get there. We have a long way to go. It requires 
each of us to be committed to this process, to expose ourselves to people who are different from experiences that are different so that we can understand their narratives, so that we can understand their voices. It takes each of us to use our voices to stand up to powerful narratives that have been perpetuated simply because of power. One other experience we met on our trip last week, we met um, the youngest freedom rider of all times, Hezekiah Watkin, and he, one, he shared an experience where he said, he was explaining to us why he kept doing what he did. And he said, one of the experiences that he shared with us is he was running away from um, people who were shooting at him. And he looked over and he realized that he was running next to his white friend who was also running away from being shot at. And he said that that bond in that moment made me realize that if he would do that for me, I would do anything for him. And, and that bond, I think, I think that is the beginning of how we solve this is we begin to create bonds that are stronger than hatred. I love that. I hope people listening to this will believe that change is coming. I, I think that's one of the great lessons from the civil rights movement is the strong belief that change is coming, uh, change is inevitable. I guess here's the last thing I'll say. I hope people listening to this will use their power and privilege to create change instead of create personal comfort. I think the system needs to change. And I think we are the people that need to change it. And the last thing that I will say is another lesson from John Lewis. The civil rights movement was not about the white community changing. Like the civil rights community didn't, the civil rights movement didn't happen because the white community realized the wrongness of Jim Crow laws. It happened because the black community got to a point where they refused to sit in the back of the bus. They refused to not sit at the dining cafe counters. In essence, we got to a point where we decided our conditions were intolerable, so we did something. I think it's, it's time we continue to demonstrate these conditions are no longer tolerable, so let's do something.